I'd like to welcome everybody back. Um, we are uh, Shepherd's Chapel. This is something that we do every Wednesday. Uh, our studies have been in the Book of Acts and the Book of Revelation. Today we're going to uh, focus in on the Book of Acts and we'll resume with Acts and Revelation together next week. We are presently in chapter 7. Let me just mention for those of you who are looking at this on YouTube or hearing it on Spotify, we will have an upcoming change that we'll announce in the near future. Presently on YouTube, we can be found at Shepherd's Chapel, comma, Bill Rudolph. That's R-U-D-O-L-P-H. And on Spotify, Shepherd's Chapel, N-W. We will be going uh, off of the uh, Shepherd's Chapel, Bill Rudolph, and in the future, uh, sometime in the summer, uh, rebranding things so that anything that is online will be Shepherd's Chapel, N-W. The reason for the additional designation is because there has been a long standing ministry called Shepherd's Chapel and we wanted to make a distinction from them since we are not them. But we'll tell you more of that in the future. But this is what we do every Wednesday. Our goal is to teach the Word of God, to be faithful to the Word of God, to get that out to as many people as possible in whatever um, ways God would have us to use. In addition to what we do on Wednesdays, we also meet as a small congregation on Sundays and um, we are an extension of a, uh, another ministry which is Lamb Foundation. We are independent from Lamb Foundation, however we're recognized uh, by the Commonwealth as a standalone church uh, known as Shepherd's Chapel. So while we may have our roots with Lamb Foundation, we are independent of Lamb Foundation. I'm the chaplain for Lamb Foundation, but I'm also the pastor for Shepherd's Chapel. So that simply by way of introduction to those who are new to us, uh, we hope that if you like what you hear or like what you see on YouTube, you'll spread the word to others. Again, we know of many places uh, throughout the land and unfortunately throughout the world that call themselves churches, that call themselves Bible preaching ministries that simply are not. Many places have chosen to compromise and will continue to compromise. Our goal is, again, in the long term to proclaim as the Apostle Paul did the whole counsel of God being faithful to the scriptures. So, without any further ado, let's look to the Lord not only for his guidance, but also his blessing upon our time together. Lord, we come before you in Jesus' name, thanking you for another day and thanking you for your mercies, which are new to us every morning. Thank you for these folks that are here. And also thank you for those that will be watching this on YouTube or hearing it on Spotify. And we pray that as the word goes forth, both in this place and in other places uh, near and far, Lord, may we be faithful. 
And to the measure that we are faithful, help us to remember these things. And to the measure that perhaps we are in error in any way, help us to forget those things. And help us to continue to study, to show ourselves approved as uh, one who is faithfully proclaiming the word of God, rightly divided. And that you are using that word to build us up in the faith and call out some to yourself. Lord, we have no idea the influence that we will have. That's of little consequence to us. Our main concern is simply that we glorify you in the way we speak and then in the way we remember and then put these things into practice. Help us tonight to learn from the example of Stephen. We live in an ever-darkening world a world that has become increasingly hostile toward the truth of Christianity and help us to stand as he stood and others have stood before him and as others have stood since him, faithfully proclaiming the truth in his case even to the point of death. Help us always to remember that we are to fear him who is able to not only kill the body but cast the soul into hell. Help us not to be faithless, rather help us to always remember that if we deny you, that you will deny us before the Father. On the other hand, if we are faithful to you, that you will be faithful to us, and that you will continue to give us of your Holy Spirit in order to help us to persevere in the faith. We commit these things to you now, and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in Acts chapter 7. The scene, again, by way of quick review, is this. Stephen, who has been called by the apostles to be one of those individuals in Acts chapter 6 to minister to the Hellenistic widows and to others in need, is an individual who is powerful in the spirit in both his ability to speak and also in his ability to um, minister with miracles and signs. And he has been uh, basically taken captive and now is put on trial, but he's not going down without a fight. The last time we spoke, we reminded you that at this juncture, I'm sure he is well aware of his fate to be. That just like Jesus was put on trial and falsely accused, and subsequently put to death. He could see the handwriting on the wall, <clears throat> but he's going to go down with a fight. And that fight is that he is going to give an extensive, in fact, the most extensive uh, testimony, beginning from the time of Abraham until the time of uh, the people of God in the experience with the tabernacle and then subsequently with the temple but over and over again it's not him that's rejecting the truth it is in fact them presently and their predecessors so the focal point of his speech to them has been you've rejected God you've rejected the patriarchs You've rejected Moses, who was going to be used of God as a deliverer of the people of Israel. You rejected God's law, 
that thing that you put out there and you want everybody to believe that you believe, but in reality you don't. And then you make a mockery of the tabernacle and subsequently the temple, and then he offers a stinging rebuke and indictment in the latter part of the chapter, and then he's subsequently stoned to death. So I want to pick up where we left off, and that was uh, we've covered their rejection of God, the patriarchs, Moses, who was called upon by God to be raised up as a deliverer, and then with Moses, um, acting as the go-between between the people that God was going to call and constitute as the nation of Israel. With that, God, in creating his covenant with what becomes the nation of Israel, he gives them the law. And we'll pick up the narrative at verse 37. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise you up a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly of the wilderness with the angel who spoke to them on Sinai and with our ancestors, and he received living words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him, and in their hearts, we turn, they turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. This was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. Now, what's going on? God has led this people, the um, individuals, the progeny of the patriarchs, the patriarchs again, are Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and Joseph's brothers. They are in Egypt. They're called out of Egypt by God through Moses. Moses is going to be God's deliverer. You remember the episode over and over and over again when Moses is called upon by God to go into the court of Pharaoh. And what does he tell Pharaoh over and over again? Let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. And Moses goes back and he says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. And then God brings the plagues upon Egypt. And at some point, the final plague, if you will, is the death of the firstborn and the uh, beginning of the practice of Passover. And Passover was practiced this way. When God has reached his fed up point, and we need to understand that that's not a phrase that I use loosely with God. You see, God reaches his fed up point with people. Years ago, I was counseling a young man. He was a stupid young man. And I told him he was a stupid young man. Here's why he was stupid. At the time he was living with his parents, he was in his 30s, he had been involved with a couple of different women, he had made at least one kid with one of these women, 
and he liked to drink and drink and drink and drink and drink and he would borrow cars from his family and go out and wreck the cars and he would go out and wreck another car and then he would go out and do more drinking and then he would get into fights with his girlfriend and so on and so forth and at some point his family said if you're going to continue to live here you need to do counseling and we have somebody we'd like to recommend you to do counseling with so he ended up doing counseling with me and regardless during the time that he was counseling with me he was very nice he was very polite but he didn't stop drinking he didn't stop wrecking cars he didn't stop ending up in situations that resulted in him having to go to court costing the family thousands and thousands of dollars he didn't stop even though he eventually lost his job as a result of either being late or showing up drunk and yet he would come in for counseling and again he would be very polite and so on and so forth and at some point I just got sick of it and I told him that I was sick of it and I told him you're just being silly and stupid when it comes to God how long do you think God's gonna put up with this to which he said well isn't that what God's all about and I said excuse me what are we talking about he said God's in the forgiving business isn't he God's gonna continue to forgive me over and over and over again and I said, let me read one verse to you. Just one. All I want you to do is listen to it. I'm going to read it. I'm going to read it twice. And I want you to listen. Because this is what God is saying to you. And I'm afraid that your day is going to come in short order. And it's Proverbs 29, verse 1. And there's a phrase, or, or yeah, a two-word phrase, stiff-necked. Stiff-necked simply means stubborn. Okay? Everybody got that? It's just the, the, uh, the old Hebrew way of defining somebody as stubborn. They're stiff-necked. All right? So the writer of Proverbs says it this way. Whoever remains, and I'm going to substitute stubborn for stiff-necked. Whoever remains stubborn after many rebukes and I looked at him and I went like this will suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy I said do you know what that means he said no I don't know what that means I said let me tell you what that means and I broke it down for him whoever remains stubborn after many rebukes a rebuke would be like this somebody comes in they're a resident here and they're always complaining to me about how the staff isn't fair to them and so forth and so I say to them okay how about you come over to the office and we walk into the office and I see the problem instantly they walk in they're rude they're rude to Trish they're rude to Jody Donna happens to be here they're rude to Donna Paula walks in they're rude to Paula they're rude to everybody and I size it up quickly and I say, have they ever told you that you're rude? Oh yeah, all the time. Okay, stop being rude. And telling a person to stop being rude would be a rebuke. Now, in his case, 
if he's being rude to staff, he's not going to be destroyed. But God says this, to you and you and you and you and to everybody listening to this or watching this, one thing that we have in common is this. We are all God's creatures. We are all made in His image. And as a result, God says, I have rights over you and you and you. In other words, my rights as your creator is I get to tell you what to do and not do. And if you don't take that to heart, then you ought to receive that as a rebuke. But my point is, and don't miss the point, God reaches his limit. When I was a little boy, I knew when mom had had it with one of us that she would make she would say it just like this and she would do the gesture just like this so you know here is a homage to my mother she'd look at me and she'd say Billy right now I'm up to here now what do you think that meant to Billy little Billy or my brother Dave or my brother Rob when mom said Right now, I'm up to here. And she she do an imaginary line across her forehead. What that meant is she's fed up. And you didn't want to go from here to here. Because if you did, you knew you were going to get spanked. You were going to get sent to your room. They didn't do time out in those days. They did it the old-fashioned way. You got a whack or two or three and maybe go to your room and you're not going to have dinner. We're not going to argue the value of that. I'm, I'm making a point. Don't miss the point. When God rebukes and rebukes and rebukes people, in essence, he's like this. Right now, I'm up to here with you. You have a choice. You can either do it my way or you can do it your way. And what happens with people? At some point, God just cuts them off. And we need to understand that God gives the law not to make people feel bad, but to say, I want you to stay within the boundaries. And if you stay within the boundaries, we're going to have a good relationship. If you go out of the boundaries, there's going to be consequences. And what's happening here is Stephen is saying, that while the people of God received the word of God and the law of God, notice what he says in verse 39. Our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt. So in other words, here's what's happened. They've gone out of Egypt. They've crossed over the Red Sea. Now they're wandering around the wilderness. 
They're sick of the manna. They're sick of the quail. And their hearts are pining away for what? Good old Egypt. Where they had been slaves of Pharaoh and the subsequent other pharaohs because there was a whole series of pharaohs in the same way that during the time of Christ there was a series of Caesars. But during that time, after there came along a pharaoh that didn't hold Joseph in any regard, what happened? We're going to make these people our slaves. And they did. And for 400 years, they're slaves to the Egyptians under the rule of Pharaoh. But despite that, they don't like being out in the wilderness. And it says their hearts turn back to Egypt. They, want, they wanted the good old days. And they never heard the words of Billy Joel because Billy Joel wasn't born yet. But there's a line in one of Billy Joel's songs that goes like this. And it's a line I used to use with people in counseling when they talk about the good old days. And Billy Joel said it this way. The good old days weren't always good and tomorrow's not as bad as it seems. But there's this thing that we do and that's to romanticize the good old days. We remember the good about the good old days. We forget the bad that was part and parcel of the good old days. And that's exactly what was taking place. It says they rejected him and in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. If God would have said, do you want to go back to Egypt? What would they have said? No, we don't want to go back to Egypt. We're glad that Moses brought us out of Egypt. And God would have said, you're liars. Your hearts are pining away. They told Aaron, make us a God. So the episode there is Moses goes up on Mount Sinai again. He's long in coming back. And they say, listen, we're going to give you our gold and our silver. You make an idol for us. We want to bow down to something. So he does that. And he creates this golden calf. You know, a lot of people think this golden calf thing was probably fairly big. Actually, there is a representation of a golden calf down at the University of Penn Archaeological Museum. The one they have down there is only about this big, actually. But it was something that was part and parcel of the people of that day in the wilderness area that they were in, where they would make representations of nature and use them as idols to bow down to. So that's subsequently what happens. And what takes place? It's a terrible episode in the life of the early life of the nation of Israel. It says in verse 41, they brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun and the moon and the stars. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the desert? People of Israel, you have taken up the tabernacle of Moloch, the star of your god Rephim, 
the idols you made to worship. Therefore I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. The people of God turn their backs on God and what God has done and not simply wanted to go back to Egypt, but they gave themselves over to idol worship. The idol of Moloch, the god Rephim. Moloch was terrible. Moloch was a, a, an awful representation of idolatry. If you would go into a town, there would be this metal statue made of Moloch. Often you would see it like with, the, I believe, like the head of a dog or, or a wolf or something. And you, you have these outstretched arms and the arms would be tilted in such a way that basically they would form a trough. And the trough would go to an opening in the belly area of this statue. And the statue might be, oh, I don't know, 10, 12, 20 feet tall, okay, with these outstretched arms. But part of the worship of the god Moloch was people wanting Moloch's favor and this is horrific, so bear with us. They would take their children. They would put the children, live children, on the arms of this statue. And then underneath the arms, they would build a fire and light the fire. And the child would burn to death. And then the blood of the child would go down this trough into the belly of the god. And in so doing, in offering their child to this Moloch, Moloch was supposedly going to give them good favor and health and financial prosperity. Well, that was something that we find inconceivable, don't we? And yet, think about some of the things that go on in the world today. I mean, there are people in the world right now that you may find it very difficult to believe that truly worship animals. There is a reason, for example, like in India, a sacred cow is referred to as a sacred cow. Or if you're, you're walking across a, an area in in India or in Asia, you know, where there's elephants. The, the elephants have right away. How come? Because they're sacred beings. How silly is that? Well, we look at it as silly, but in their culture and in the way they worship God or their representative or representation of God in their head, they're very fine with that. Well, the people of Israel we're doing that too. And God is calling them on the carpet. And, he's, and Stephen here is quoting from the book of Amos. And he's making the point. You're, you're calling me into question. You're daring to say that I'm rejecting the law. In reality, you are rejecting the law. Not me. In the same way you've rejected Moses. In the same way you've rejected the patriarchs. In the same way you've rejected God. He continues, Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern. 
he had seen after receiving the tabernacle. Our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David. But with the tabernacle, the tabernacle itself was never to be an end in itself. Yes, to the, the, the Israelites, and then subsequently the Jews, it was a bit of a sacred place. There were parts of it you just didn't mess around with. The most holy place, for example, the, 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 the place of primary worship for God, was only entered once a year by the high priest. Otherwise, off limits. Didn't go into it. Nobody. And in that sense, it was that whole uh, idea of tabernacle or temple might have been thought of as a sanctuary or sacred. But I want to make a point. Sometimes I'll talk to different people, and they'll be talking to me about their church, or we'll walk into a church together. And you can see when they walk into this building that they're of a different mindset than me because they're walking into something that they regard in their head as it's like holy like we should be quiet in here to which I might say to them if I was with them why? this is just a place you see the church isn't the building we look across the street there's a building we call St. Luke's Church the reality is, St. Luke's Church, really, are the people of God who are believers who attend that building. There's nothing sacred about that building at all. The part of the church building that they call a sanctuary isn't any more holy than any other part of that building or that property. In the same way, in some churches, the very front part of the church where um, the elements for communion are, are brought to, that's sometimes referred to as, that's the altar. Well, there ought not to be an altar in a church building. Why? Because Jesus has offered himself once, and only once. Never again. There's no altar. There's no sacrifices going on. That sacrifice was done 2,000 years ago on a cross. Now I say all of that because again, they were making the tabernacle and the, and the temple an end in itself. Something like, as long as we attend to this tabernacle, as long as we regard this temple as a holy place, Somehow we get points with God. You don't get points with God. Folks, if I've said anything over these last almost two years that I've been preaching and teaching, there's nothing you can do to get points with God. What God wants you to do simply is this. Repent of your sins and believe in His Son. That's it. That's it. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. If you're not born again, ask God to help you to become born again. Because it's not something that I can do. 
If you don't understand the scriptures, ask God, Lord, help me to understand the scriptures. Because it's not anything that I can do. There's no on and off switch for any of us. Only God the Holy Spirit can make his word clear. But again, what we have is a man on trial. And the man who is on trial here, Stephen, is making a point with those who's accusing him. Understand who it is that's really on trial here. You're putting God on trial. You're putting the patriarchs on trial. You're putting Moses, your great deliverer, on trial. You're putting your law on trial. You're putting the tabernacle and the temple on trial. And all of those things are found wanting. And you want to accuse me and to blame me. Well, at some point, as Stephen is continuing to preach, it reaches a crescendo. And he makes it crystal clear to them. In case you're wondering who I've been talking about, and how you ought to deal with him. Let me make it clear to you. And so in verse 48, Stephen continues. The Most High does not live in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And then, Stephen, I'm sure, at this point, you know, he's got a bead on things. It's just like when I'm preaching at Shepherd's Chapel. I'm looking out at everybody. The other night, <clears throat> I had a dream. And it was kind of nightmarish for me. I was preaching somewhere, and nobody was paying attention. Everybody was kind of like blank face. It was like, I, I hate those situations. I've only experienced them a few times. There, there was one church that I used to preach. It was like I could never tell when the people were engaged or not. And it was like I would start a sermon and I couldn't wait to get done the sermon. I'm always interested in, you know, a person can be engaged. And what I mean by that, it's a subjective call on my part, but I'm looking around. Are people paying attention? Do they look like they're getting it? Are they agreeing with me? Are they disagreeing with me? Which is okay as well. At least there's a starting point there. And I'm sure as he's speaking, Stephen's getting it. Where's this going? This isn't going well. I know what the outcome is. I'm not getting out of here alive. That's what's going on inside of Stephen's head. And he comes to that conclusion and he says this in 51 and following. You stiff-necked people. Said again, you stubborn people. Your hearts and your ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your, your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you've betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. You think Stephen's leaving there alive? No. No. He's not. They're not going to put up with this. 
They wanted to do to him and they did to him what they couldn't do with Jesus. You remember that early episode in the Gospel of Luke? Jesus goes in, sits down, he asks for a scroll. The scroll he asks for, I believe, is from Isaiah, the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 61. He reads it. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to give sight to the blind. And he continues reading that passage. He hands it back to the attendant. He sits down and he says these words. This day, these words are fulfilled in your hearing. What was he saying? He was saying something absolutely remarkable. He was saying, folks, words that were written by Isaiah seven, eight hundred years ago are fulfilled right now, today, in this synagogue. That's exactly what he's saying. And they knew exactly what he was saying. And in saying that, he was saying, the Messiah you've been waiting for, you're looking at him. What do they do? It says in that passage, they took him out to the cliff and they're ready to throw him off the cliff. And what does he do? He walks through the crowd miraculously. How do he do that? Don't know. He's Jesus. That's not going to happen here. That's not going to happen here at all. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. Now, again, they're not just going like this. Okay, gnashing their teeth means we want a piece of him. You're going to get it. We're going to kill you. That's the idea. They're furious. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looks up to heaven and he sees the glory of God and Jesus, and this is significant, folks. Jesus doing what? Anybody? Jesus doing what? Read it if you don't have it. Mm -mm. Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. Why is that significant? Because anywhere else, when Jesus ascends to the Father, it says that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. So why is it significant that Jesus is here imaged as standing? I think simply to give the encouragement to Stephen that Jesus is about to receive him into glory. He's standing. Not to honor Stephen, I think simply to receive him. But he sees what is called a beatific vision of Jesus. He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, I see heaven open. The Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they did this. They covered their ears. We don't want to hear this anymore. No, this can't be true. Yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragging him out of the city, and they began to stone him. Well, here we also are introduced to somebody else. Somebody else of significant importance. 
significant because this somebody else who's simply there and keeping guard perhaps of their cloaks and maybe the one handing out the rocks. His name is Saul. Saul who's persecuting the church. They lay their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Why is that significant? Because a few chapters later, Saul is going to be on the Damascus Road and none other than Jesus himself is going to stop Saul in his tracks. And Saul is going to become the Apostle Paul. And then God is going to use the Apostle Paul to write at least one-third of the New Testament. And perhaps become the greatest Christian who's ever lived. Now, why is that significant? It's significant for this reason. There are some within the sound of my voice, whether here or again, on YouTube or on Spotify, who may be listening to this, wondering, is God able to save me? After all I've done in my life. Look at what Saul is doing. <laughs> John, you need a rock? Here's a rock. I'll watch your cloak. Amy, here's a pile of stones. Help yourself. We've got to stone this guy to death. Saul's that guy. Saul's that guy. There's nothing to commend him to God. There's no reason that God should ever save him. And yet God does. Simply because he chose Saul before the foundation of the world in the same way that he's chosen you if you're a believer now. There was nothing to commend me to God. Nothing. I mean, I know the mess that I am and the mess that I've been. And yet God saved me. If you have a good sense of who you are, good or bad, hopefully there's a healthy sense in which part of your life, maybe a significant part of your life, you've just lived as a rebel against God. And yet maybe you're sitting here or listening in your living room somewhere or watching somewhere on your computer or listening on your cell phone on Spotify. God saved me. But don't think that God saved you because God A, needed you or B, that you were just talented among uh, your peers or C, so smart that you chose him it was none of those things. It was simply because if you in time chose him, it's because he before time chose you. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We pray your blessing upon us now. And thank you and ask that you would bless these words to many, far and wide. For your glory and for the good of all who have heard them, and for me who has spoken them, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.